Well done, band. You guys lead us well, and uh, I'll say it was a, it's a joy to be led by these, these men and women, and, uh, and a joy to me this morning to get to pray with them uh, before service. My name's Hugh, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I have the joy of getting to oversee our small groups, and let me say as an advertisement, if you're not meaningfully connected with some other folks in this church, you're doing yourself a disservice. We need one another to grow in grace. This time of year, during football season, especially college football, you'll be watching a game, and some 18-year-old freshman will do something so inexplicably foolish that the commentator will say, wow, that was a rookie move. I have to confess to you, it was about two months ago, I made an epic rookie move. Matt emailed me and said, I want you to pick a date this fall to preach in Deuteronomy. And so I looked at my calendar, saw November 22nd was a good day for me, but I never looked at the teaching calendar. It was a rookie move not to see that the assigned text for today is Deuteronomy 16 through 25. Nine and a half chapters. So Matt says, oh good, I'm glad you picked that day, because here's your text, good luck. And so I start reading through, I'm like, Lord, what am I going to do? It's, it's the most varied set of laws you've seen. It's, it covers sacrifice and covenant transgression, matters of judgment, kingship, how to care for Levites, foreign practices, prophecy, how to conduct a war. Laws relating to unsolved murder, family affairs, sexual behavior, legal disputes, and on and on it goes. Here's a flavor of these nine and a half chapters from Deuteronomy 22. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on, any, or on the ground with young ones, or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go. But the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone should fail from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. This is the flavor of this passage. It's quite varied. It's quite comprehensive. So what do we do with a passage like this? How do we apply it? Is the law still bearing upon us as believers? I want you to turn to Galatians 3. And the way I'm going to preach these nine and a half chapters is by preaching Galatians 3, a short passage that, where Paul actually quotes Deuteronomy twice. Let's pray together and we will look at God's word. Father, we humbly submit ourselves under your divine and life-giving word. We readily acknowledge that we are insufficient to stand before you. We are insufficient with our 
even best efforts, they fall short. And so we desperately rely upon your mercy, your grace, that's new and sufficient every day. Pray that you would lead us for your namesake. Amen. Turn to Galatians 3. We're going to look at verses 10 through 14. Um, two, two major ideas in Scripture that are addressed here in this passage. That of law and gospel. How very different they are, but how easily they can be confused. Um, we must be careful to draw a line of distinction between law and gospel, but also acknowledge that there are points of, of intersection. Even the, the message of the gospel, Mark 1, 15, where Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There is promise, but there's also command in this promise. Theologian John Frame says, the demand for repentance is good news. Because in context, it implies that God, though coming in power and claim, he, he claims his rights, he's willing to forgive for Christ's sake. So we're going to see how both these ideas are necessary and important, and without each other, they, they don't make sense. So we're going to come to Galatians 3, and Paul is addressing a situation that's going on here where these Gentile believers have come to faith, and then there are Judaizers that come in and say, you can't, you can't be a Christian. You can't follow a, a Jewish Messiah without keeping his Jewish law. In order to be a true Christian, you have to keep the law. So here's what Paul says, starting in verse 10. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down first that the law puts us under the curse. The law puts us under the curse. Paul here is talking about believers that are trying to attain and keep their standing before God based upon their performance, based upon their keeping of the law. And this law is not just for Jews, but it's for all of humanity. We are all obligated to obey God's law. And universally, we transgress this holy law. We all fall short. And our failure to obey this law, it puts us under the curse. Romans 3 is quite clear. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And again, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. From birth, we are under this law, we are under obligation and the expectation of God 
to keep this law, to live holy as he is holy. Now, the law relates to us, I think there's three C's, and it's easy for us to remember how the law relates to us before we are in Christ. First, the first C is, it's a law of command. You shall do this. You shall not do this. But again, none of us measure up. None of us meet the expectation. We fall short of the standard. Thus, these commands lead to the second C, that the law condemns us. Our judicial standing before God is, is of guilt. We fall short. We do not meet the standard. Third C, because we fail to meet the commands, because we are condemned by this law, it puts us under the curse. The law curses us. This, this curse is the wrath of God. And this is not a popular notion to view God as, as a God of wrath. But if we view him as full of truth and holiness and justice, he can't wink at sin. He can't let it go unpunished. He is the great judge of the earth, and his justice will not allow injustice to go unpunished. The famous American theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he's preaching about the nature of God as a holy inferno of pure holiness. And he says that we're like a spider hanging by a thread over this great flame, that it's only his kindness that keeps us from the fire that we deserve. So the law commands, it condemns, it curses us, and our response back to this law is wild and varied. We will swing from overt rebellion to getting frustrated by that, to, to trying to, to merit God's his, his favor and salvation by keeping this law. And even, it doesn't even make sense to us how we, how we relate to this law. But first, we can see three big marks. That first, we've already seen that, that we rebel. We fall short. We, we, even when we try to keep his law, it's, our best efforts are, are tainted and they fall short. Secondly, we, we try to obey this law for merit and not from faith. It's a faithless attempt to keep the law. We want to improve our standing with God by doing good and looking the part. Performance is really important. Now, this kind of performance is, is bred in us. Even from childhood, we learn that if we follow the laws of our home, good things will follow. If, if you eat your veggies, you'll get the dessert. There's laws in school. If, if you do your homework, you'll pass the class. And you can't knock the smaller kid down to take the ball or, or else you'll go to detention. And even as adults, we know this, this still happens. You want to be looked upon well by your peers at work? You don't have the freedom to say to your foolish coworker, that was a terrible idea. And in your neighborhoods, you don't, even though your neighbor's super weird and you don't really want to spend time to talk to him, it's important to you not to look weird at HOA meetings, and so you exchange kind pleasantries. It's, it's all about the performance, and there's a law, and we keep it up. This is, on a spiritual scale, the state of every world religion. Every world religion teaches you do this list of good things, you avoid this other list, and we see millions of people in darkness around the world trying to measure up, betting their souls that they can do enough. This is why we ought to pray for the folks out of our church, 
that are going to the nations, the McWhites in the Czech Republic and, and Jill in Central Asia and Heather preparing to go to Spain, uh, Savannah in the Ivory Coast. There are people on the front lines seeking to speak the hope of the gospel, that it's not about keeping some arbitrary standard that you can never keep, that it's about his righteousness and the offer of salvation in the gospel. It's why we need to, to think and pray seriously about how to give sacrificially for Lottie Moon. This time of year, we, we're reminded often, let's, let's sacrifice going to a movie. Let's sacrifice a date night in order to send money to the nation so that the gospel can go forward. We understand law and performance. And so for us in the religious South, there's a temptation to come to the Bible and say, okay, I get it. I get law. I get performance. I, I read the shalls and shall nots, and I know how I can perform here too. I'll do what ex- what's expected. I'll look the part so I can be accepted by God. But, but it's faithless. It's, it's not an attempt to please God. It's, it's all man-centered in our own strength. So we rebel from this scripture, from these laws. We do it for merit and not from faith. Thirdly, we're bound by the law. We're bound. Paul says that God's law presses in on us so tightly that it, it's, it's, it agitates us. He says that this law arouses the sinful flesh so that it produces fruit of death in us. It's like a gnat flying around and we're swiping at it, but we can't. And so the text is clear that, that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, and here's the quote from Deuteronomy 27, Cursed by everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. And it's not even, it's not even about God, it's all about you. If you do well in this law, you swell with pride. And if you do poorly, you lead, it leads you to despair. His law commands, it condemns, it curses. We rebel. We try to obey for merit, not from faith. And we're frustrated while we're bound up by it. But here's the good news in point two. That Jesus takes away the curse for us. Jesus takes away the curse. We see in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Let's let's be amazed again that Jesus, who deserved no curse, that he took the curse for our transgressions. He did it by becoming a curse for us. So how, how did he remove the curse? Look ahead. In, in Galatians 3, and we'll see how God uses this cursing, condemning law that imprisons us as a way to point us to Christ. Galatians 3, verses 22 and following. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law is so effective in its condemnation, it's like a giant highlighter for our sin. So that we become convinced 
of our sinfulness. The law cannot make us well, but it points us to the one that can. It's the thermometer. It says, you're sick, you need to go to the doctor. You need help. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of sin? How did he know that he was a wretch? The law showed it to him. The perfect law of a righteous God showed him. The law does not say, try harder and do better. It does not. It says, you need a new heart. We need a new nature. Now, we're really good at seeking our own comfort, and it's always soul-crushing to see with new clarity that we are woefully insufficient, that we do not meet the mark. We cannot match this standard. Now, God could let us go along happily deceived that we do make it, that we are sufficient, but it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that takes us from the road to hell, which is wide and smooth, and, and willing to wreck us. Psalm 51, David prays, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. It's God's kindness to crush you, to crush your sufficiency and the deception that you meet his standard. He's going to pop the bubble and show us that we need him. This is what the law does. So you must ask yourself, has God ever crushed you? Has he thoroughly convinced you in his law that you need a savior? We have to be crushed before we can look to Jesus as the one who takes away the curse of the law. We see in verse 13, the second time that Deuteronomy is quoted in this short passage. He references Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. We broke the law. Jesus took the punishment. And we see here that Jesus is a cursed Messiah on a cursed cross. Cursed both by his God and by his law. This is why he prays in Matthew 27. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, limic sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All he had ever known was perfect fellowship perfect unity with his father and then the father crushes him by putting our sin on him first peter 2 he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So are we still under the law? Well, it depends. Um, Bill Clinton famously said, it depends upon the meaning of the word is. Um, so let me try to be clear. 
are Christians under the curse of the law being condemned by the law and bound by the law? No. No. Romans 6. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Galatians 3.23. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the faith would be revealed. Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ, believing the gospel, you can know forever that Jesus has kept the law perfectly for you. He's the only lawful human to have ever lived, the only sinless one in all of humanity. He became the curse for us, or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that he became sin for us, that we then might become the righteousness of God in him. So our position in Christ is forever secure, forever holy before God because we are in Christ. His standing before God is our standing before God. We're positionally holy, righteous, blameless before God because Jesus is. Since then, we are forever secure in Christ. Does that mean that Christians should disregard what God commands of us? Should we have no regard for what the gospel calls us to? No. No. John 8. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This does not mean you are free from all law. A lawless Christian is an unbiblical notion. It means you are now free from that binding law. You're free from the power of sin. Now you're free to respond to your Savior in obedience, to live a new life. You say, well, what about all that no longer under the law talk? Romans 7, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And hear this, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Then in verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So how does the law relate to us now since we are in Christ we're, no, we're not under the law. We're not bound to keep it as terms and conditions of being sons and daughters. That's legalism, and we refute it strongly. Before Christ, the law was command. It would condemn, and it would curse. Now in Christ, the law still commands, but it does not command us to obey for merit it commands us to obey from merit. And, and it convinces of God's righteousness and our desperate need for it. 
We don't throw away the law because Jesus didn't throw it away. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And as the fulfiller of this law, he takes the meaning deeper. He takes it to the heart. So he says, he says when you read don't murder, the fuller and deeper meaning is you, don't need to have, you can't have hatred for a brother. You can't resent a brother. You can't speak harsh words against a brother because that is equivalent to murder. We don't throw away the law because of the Great Commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We do not throw away the law. Now, Christians, we always have to fight legalism. We're always going to have to fight this kind of transactional holiness. We're going to be tempted that way time and time again. But I think, I think there's another temptation for us. Um, for us that, that look at salvation through the lens of a big God. This temptation that uh, it directly impacts how we live. In the midst of our solid confidence in a strong God, we can say Jesus has done it all, he's paid it all, and therefore he expects nothing of us. This, again, is an anti-biblical notion. We cannot be anti-law. I want us to see in point three how the gospel demands us to live obediently. So our third point is lawfully obedient living. First thing I want you to see is that we must, if we're in Christ, we must remember that we are saved. We must remember that we are saved. Know that God loved you long before you loved him. That your standing with Christ is forever secure. That we have to be motivated by this love of Christ shown to us. That we want to respond in love to him. We have acceptance in Christ, security in Christ, a place in the family of Christ. So now we can follow the law of Christ from our standing with him, from a heart of faith. We celebrate what we're saved from, but we also have to celebrate what we're saved to. J.C. Ryle, in his uh, amazing book, Holiness, he says, We must be holy because this is one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power. We, we have to fight for obedience and holiness knowing where Christ has put us, where his work has put us in him forever. Secondly, I want you to remember why you're saved. Have you ever taken time to consider why God saved you? There are multiple ways to answer. You could say that you could point to his great love, and that's true. You could point to uh, his glory, the simple pleasure he has in it. But there's a, a third and just as biblical reason that, that he saved us that we would be holy. I want you to, to listen to these passages and let the, the word wash over you. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
1 Thessalonians 4. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our, about our, excuse me, this is 2 Timothy. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is one of the reasons that, that God has saved us, why he has saved us. Thirdly, I want you to remember that you are being saved. You are being saved. We saw that, that God has saved us for holiness, that, that he has saved us securing our salvation, our justification, one day, we will be glorified. We will be face-to-face -face with Christ. But we're in the in-between. We are being sanctified. We are being saved now. And we can trust in a big, strong God that he will do it. He will. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to do his work incrementally in us. And often one painful degree of glory to the next. We've been saved by the gospel. We're being saved by the gospel. He will do it. Now, this is how we should respond to the gospel. Um, knowing that heaven is a place of holy rest, we do not have rest from holiness now. This week, Hebrews 12 hit me so powerfully. Hebrews 12, 14. The command here is to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace. Strive for holiness. Author Kevin DeYoung, he says, holiness is not an option. And the holiness here in Hebrews 12 is not a holiness we receive a holy, but it's a holiness we strive for. God was intent on making his children holy because holiness must mark out all those who would have fellowship with a holy God. Holiness is the goal of your redemption and it is necessary for your salvation. Now I want you to hear me. This is not a message of do better and try harder. This is not moralism or legalism, or fundamentalism, or whatever ism you want to put in there. This is the rock-solid confidence of a mighty God, a God who chose us before the foundation of the world, a Son that effectively saves, and a Spirit that will do His work in us. He will. And yet, God's declaration of holiness in us by Christ's merit, and our hard work at pursuing holiness, those, those ideas are not at odds. It's like a 16-year-old boy that says, more than anything, I want to have a truck. I got my license, I want a truck now. But the boy doesn't have a dollar. He can't buy a truck. And so he's resting in the promises of God and says, God will supply all my needs. He's my providential providing father. He's going he's gonna to give me a truck. Well, we would say, boy, have you bumped your head? 
No, God's going to provide that truck by you working hard all summer. He's going to provide the means to buy this truck by you cutting grass 50 hours a week this summer. God's provision and our hard work are not at odds. And so in the same way, when God declares us holy in Christ and then also commands us to be holy, those are not contradictory ideas. Hebrews 12 says that the holiness is necessary for salvation and that we're to strive for it. God makes us holy and we're called to to pursue it, to strive for it. Gospel laziness is unbiblical. So we need to look to God's perfect word daily to see the glory of God in the face of Christ again and again. The law won't condemn us or curse us any longer in Christ. He's removed that forever. It will convince us of God's holiness and our need for it. And so Christian, how do you, how do you strive for holiness? What does that look like? I don't want to give a new law, a new standard, but I want to remind you that, that Jesus has kept the law for you. He's canceled the debt against you. He's freed you from the law so that you are now free to obey him. You can live for him. We need to remember that we're like Israel here in Deuteronomy. We're coming out of Egypt. We're weak, and yet we are redeemed. We're loved and yet we're prone to fear and forgetfulness. We're prone to wandering from our God. And this is all the more reason to not have confidence in your flesh, to not try to white-knuckle it and do better and try harder, to not be fooled into thinking that you're strong enough, because you're not. We can be assured that Christ has saved us, that he is saving us, that one day he will save us fully. And because we're sure of those things, we can fight for holiness. This is why John Owen said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. When we respond to the free grace of God with a willing spirit made possible by the Holy Spirit to follow his commands, then we'll find like John, John the Apostle, who says in in 1 John 5, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That yoke that, that Jesus puts upon us, it's, it's light and it's easy. When we are seeing his holiness and his mercy and his grace, we can respond. We have to bring light to this fight for holiness. This week I got a, a call from a man uh, here in the church. and He called and said, Hugh, you know my, my fight with this, per- this particular sin for many years. And he said, I want you to know that, that this morning, this is what happened, and this, is, this was the ramifications in my relation to my wife and how we fought and how I was sinful. And Now, why would he call and confess sin to me? Because he is convinced when he looks in the Word and he sees the perfect holiness of God that he's, he does not match up, that in his practice he is not living holy before God. And so how, how do we respond to that? I told him, I said, brother, Jesus loves you. I love you, but this, this sin is not okay. We have to fight this sin. There's a, there's a tendency these days for, for guys to get in a huddle and say, you know that, that sin I've, co- I've confessed the last 32 weeks? Yeah, I did it again. 
High five, bro, so did I. It's not okay. If we claim Christ, if we say that God is holy and that we're bound for heaven, and yet our lives are not marked by repentance, marked by little holiness, little grieving over sin, how can we say that holiness is a home for us? There must be humility. Like this brother that called me. He said, I blew it, and I need you to ask hard questions. I don't trust myself. I need you to help fight this sin. So here's what's at stake if we don't pursue holiness. Jesus will not get the glory that he's due. If we continually give ourselves over to sin without repentance, then we show disregard for Christ. We will not be known for our holiness. Paul, in writing greetings to the New Testament churches, he says, your holiness is known. If we don't pursue it, it will not be known. Our, our lives will be anemic, lacking evangelistic fervor. We'll never look someone in the eye and say, trust Christ and repent of your sin if we're not doing it. We'll be living contrary to the gospel of Christ. I'm not advocating a new law, an external uh, conformity. We're talking about obedience from the heart. It's about loving God with, with an obedient heart. This week I was uh, really strongly impacted by DeYoung's book, The Whole in Our Holiness. I strongly commend it to you. I want to read a short excerpt from, from this book. He says, there's this reality that holiness is plain hard work, and we're often lazy. We like our sins, and dying to them is painful. Almost everything is easier than growing in godliness. So we try and fail, try and fail, and then give up. Let me, let me challenge and encourage you and remind you, believer, that you have been saved. And Jesus is fiercely committed to completing that work in you. You will be saved. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Pursue holiness. Now, how, how do you respond to this kind of message? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, my life is not marked by holiness and I don't even care. It matters little to me that my life does not look holy. Perhaps you're still under the curse of the law. Perhaps your heart is still hard and cut off from hope in the living God, and you need to see in Christ the beauty of a Messiah that will take the curse for you. Or maybe you're in Christ and you say, my life does not look very holy, but I remember a time that uh, I would strive and I would fight and I did pursue holiness, but, but if I'm honest, I'm not pursuing it now the way I once did. Let the gospel, the good news that Jesus took the curse that you deserved, be the reminder let his perfect holiness put a fire under you to
to run hard after that holiness. That his declaration of your innocence in him forever is the fuel to pursue it. And rest knowing that he is effective, that he does his work. He will bring about your salvation. And so let me encourage you to examine your own heart now. Ask the Lord to put the spotlight on those areas in your beliefs and in your practices where you're not pursuing holiness, where you're not responding to the free gift of God by saying, I want to strive for that. At this time, the band's going to come up. They're going to lead us in song, and I want to challenge you just to take a moment to to pray to examine yourself and respond to the the kind offer of christ in the gospel the offer that jesus says to to take his light and easy yoke upon us let's pray together Father, we know what we have merited by our lives. We merit condemnation and curse for all of eternity. But we are amazed and thankful at the kindness you show us in your Son. A kindness that removes curse, that takes sin away, that makes us right and adopts us as sons and daughters. And so we pray that by the power of your Spirit this morning that you would do work to draw those that are in darkness to light. That you would, by the power of your Spirit, lead to repentance. That we would be convinced of your holiness, that we would be convicted of our great need for it, And that we would again commit ourselves to strive for holiness. For the sake of your name, for your reputation here in Greenville and to the nations, bring revival to our hearts so that we would be a holy people for your namesake.